uh, get started today. Uh, up until uh, we moved to the prairies, uh, my favorite hockey team was the Vancouver Canucks. Because never in franchise history have the Vancouver Canucks ever won a Stanley Cup. Okay? They came close twice. Does anyone know the two infamous dates that they came close twice in? One was in 1994, and the other one, you want to hit the slide for me, was in 2011. Okay? To be more precise, it was June 15th of 2011, and it was about four months before my wedding, so take that. I do remember my anniversary. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know if I got, I want to show, I don't know if you got a slide or two. Yeah, you can get that next one going on there. I want to show you that uh, I was actually down in Vancouver for this. This is game seven of the Stanley Cup finals between Vancouver and Boston. And as you might know, there is an infamous story behind this game. Does anyone remember what it is? It was the year of the riots, okay? In that, when Vancouver lost, the entire city, all those people right there in that photo, rioted, okay? Because they lost. And it was epic. It was crazy. And I have a confession to make. I was there for that. Now, I didn't actually participate in the riot, but you have to understand that uh, prior to what had been happening for uh, the weeks building up to this, it's like as Vancouver became more and more likely to win the Stanley Cup, momentum started growing and all those people started gathering downtown to watch the game. And so one day uh, for the game seven, I actually decided that I would go down down to watch the game there, but it, as I was there, I started noticing that people were bringing jerry cans of gas. So whatever was going to happen, win or lose, this would be the end result of it. And I'm sh and I'm sharing this with you because there's the there's a picture of the skyline after the riot. Do you believe it in Vancouver or not? I'm sharing this with you because. <laughs> I've been trying to, uh, as we've been going through the uh, uh, Bible, I've been trying to get us ready for the book of Ephesians by telling us uh, the story of the Ephesian church and what it was like. And I've been using Vancouver as a way to help us understand what exactly was uh, Ephesus like. And Ephesus shares one more characteristic with Vancouver, and that is they both riot for no reason. <laughs> And I'd like to share with you that story today, and hopefully there is something encouraging that you can come out of it. So, that story starts in uh, verse uh, 21, but before uh, I get into the story, I just want to recap what has happened so far, so that if you're new here, you're not totally lost. And so, we started the story, uh, basically, the story of the Ephesian church starts with a man named Paul. And Paul is a man, if you don't know who he is, he's got a whole story in himself, but the summary of his story is this, is that he is a man who believes in Jesus and is called by Jesus to go and share the message of Jesus 
to everyone outside Israel. And so that's what he does. That's his whole life's model and theme. He goes into the entire ancient Roman world and goes and starts telling everybody about Jesus, going to all these Roman cities that have never heard about it. And one of them was the city of Ephesus. And one of the things you need to know about Ephesus is that Ephesus was one of the most desired cities to live in at that time. The streets were made of marble. It was, it was great. It held one of the seven wonders of the world, which I will talk about. And it was a very pluralistic city, meaning that um, there were a lot of spiritual ideas that there wasn't, there was actually a main uh, religion that ruled over them all, but, but everyone had different views of different kinds of spirituality. And that is uh, an interesting uh, point to note because I've noticed that pluralistic cultures where you go into a city or you go into a town or you go into a community that just kind of says, oh great, believe what you want, everyone, everything's open-minded. That's actually a hard place for the gospel to start because the gospel is exclusive, right? So it becomes very hard to get in there. And, and so uh, Paul looks at this and says, I'm going to plant a church there. And he spends three years of his life in Ephesus, the longest he spent anywhere else. And Ephesus is actually, when you go through the Bible, more is written about Ephesus than any other church in the Bible. Seven out of the seven epistles or writings in the New Testament are either written from Ephesus or regarding Ephesus. Or to Ephesus, actually. Sorry. And so what winds up happening is he spends three years of his life there, and Christianity, or the message of Jesus, starts becoming popular in this place that is relatively hard to break into. And we talked about this and what happened over the course of three years is the Holy Spirit moved, people were healed, people were taught daily about Jesus in the Hall of Tyrannus, people were free from demonic activity. And we talked about last week how uh, believers openly confessed and renounced their sin, right? I talked about this idea, this is really a, an important idea for us to grasp if we want to outreach, because I think that confession of our sin, what it does in us is it creates a character of humility, right? And that humility is very attractive to non-believers. There's something safe about someone who is humble, not false humility, but someone who recognizes their own shortcomings and finds them in Jesus. And I think what you're reading in that story there, where they are uh, they were they burning all their witchcraft books and confessing their sins, is that confession of sin is actually, quote-unquote, fueling the fire, if you will, of the popularity of Jesus. Okay? And that's really important to note, because by this time, the entire city and the surrounding province of Asia all know about Jesus Christ. That it's not just a sort of uh, niche kind of fringe idea, but it's actually making significant inroads into people's lives and into people's livelihoods and to how the culture of the Ephesus works as a whole. And what you're starting to see is that it is changing the city, is that Jesus comes in, he gives the people of Ephesus a new identity, and the culture in the city is changing. And, as, and people outside of Christianity are going to know that, and that's where our story picks up today in verse 21. And the first thing I want you to see in verse 21 to verse 22 is that God is calling Paul to take the gospel to Rome. It says this. It says that 
Now, after these events, so talking about uh, the renouncing of sin, which we talked about last week, Paul resolved in his spirit to pass through Macedonia and Acadia and go to, to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also go to Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Eurastus, he himself stayed in Asia there for a while. So here's what I want you to catch. A catch, and this is probably what I want you to understand. This is this is the centerpiece verse of this story, because when you read, and I, and, and I want you to understand that very clearly, because when you and I read what follows, you and I are uh, liable to pass over this part. But I actually think, if you let me argue it well, that this is the crux of the story right here. Okay, is that Paul has been in the city, has been active in the city. He's planted a church there. He's done a good job. He's been discipling believers, and they are growing and maturing in character. And what this verse is telling us is that God, by His Holy Spirit, is working in Paul's life and impressing in Paul's heart to go both to to, uh, to go somewhere else. You note that the passage where Paul is going is twofold. God is both leading him to Jerusalem. And then to Rome, and if you read the rest of the book of Acts, from here on out, it is all about his dealings in both those two cities. Okay? So that is cruel, because I want you to understand that God has a plan for Paul, and it's a really important key detail to understand because of what is about to happen. The text goes on and says this, is that uh, Jesus' popularity is starting to become a threat to the way of the life of the people who live in the city of Ephesians. It says this in verse 22, About this time, no little disturbance came about concerning the way. The way is what they referred to as Christians back then. Jesus is becoming popular in the city, and because of that, Ephesus has been changing, but it's a subtle change. And a man named Demetrius is noticing it says this in verse 24. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business to the craftsmanship. So we are introduced to a man named Demetrius, and what he's telling us is that the silversmith industry in which he works in makes him very wealthy because he creates shine, shrines to the, the god of the city named Artemis. You see, as, and he's noticing something about his business. You see, as people are coming to faith in Jesus, it's having a negative effect on the Ephesian economy. Demetrius, who would have been a, uh, the leader of the silversmith, he would have been responsible for taking customers' orders and assigning them to the appropriate people. So Demetrius would have been the the, the front man, if you will, on the front lines. That you would go to him, and you would the first person you would talk to would him, and if you wanted a shrine, you would place the order with him. Okay? And because people are coming to Jesus, he's noticing that there is a subtle drop in the orders that are taking place over time. And as he's the person on the front line... He's watching the demand for religious icons dwindle, year after year. As more and more people turn to Jesus, 
there are less pagan worshippers, and relatively few people worship or uh, now worshiping the god Artemis. And uh, that's where the story picks up. And so what he does is he gathers his fellow craftsmen and he says this. This is what happens in verse 25. These he gathered together with workmen in similar trades. And he said, men, you know that from this business we have wealth. And you see here that not only in Ephesus, but all over Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned many, a great many people away, saying that gods made with human hands are not gods. And there is a danger, not only that this trade of ours may become in disrepute, but also that the temple of our great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be even disposed of from her magnificence. She whom all Asia could worship. Right? So before I go on, I think you need to understand the backbone of the Ephesian economy. Okay? The Ephesian economy was largely centered around the worship of Artemis. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of a modern day example of that. So maybe this is a bad illustration, Rod, so you can tell me or not. But um, oil, oil and cattle are really important to Alberta, right? Okay. It's okay. Just double checking. <laughs> so imagine that a wave of vegan environmentalists <laughs> make their way through Alberta and start promoting that everyone cut off the gas line and eat plant-based burgers. Okay? So, what would happen if that gained traction here, right? Well, you would have a lot of people that would be afraid that they would be out of work. And the similar sort of idea is happening in this text. Maybe a better example than, than Alberta and beef would be Israel and religion. Okay? So modern-day Israel, a big bulk of its economy comes through religious tourism, right? Why? Does anyone want to take a guess? There are three major religions in Israel. Which ones are they? Islam, Judaism, Christianity. Islam, Judaism, Christianity. So imagine the bulk of money that's coming in as the pilgrims from Islam, for all the Christians that want to take the Holy Tour. And by the way, it is, you know, I want to go, but I also know that it's a little bit of a sham. I actually went to somebody who actually went on those trips, and he, he, they went on, like, this is, this is the path that Jesus took, and this is the rock that Jesus sat on. So kiss this rock. And, and first of all, I'm going, that is probably not the rock that Jesus sat on. <laughs> first of all, why would I kiss it? Because everyone else has been kissing it for like 50 years. That's gross. <laughs> like, my, my point is, is that religion in Israel uh, is, is a big deal for this economy. And it's the same with Ephesus. Ephesus's backbone of the economy is... A, is the is is actually worship every year? Ephesus hosted a festival to celebrate the great goddess Artemis, and economically, it would be to Ephesus what the stampede is to Calgary. It was a celebration that brought in people from all over the province. They would watch tournaments and plays. They would come to worship the worship of the great temple of Artemis, which you have, which you have see a rendering of in the background here. 
it stood, it is one of the seven wonders of the world, and uh, here it is now, I believe, if I'm correct. So, it stood uh, 239 feet wide, and 418 foot uh, structure, and it had 127 marble columns, and at the center of it stood a massive altar, and with a large stone carving of the great god, god goddess Artemis. And at the center of that statue, you don't see it in this picture, is this, she's holding uh, a meteor that is supposed to be, uh, represent, is supposed to represent Zeus coming and representing the god of Artemis. Artemis was the fertility goddess. And so if you lived in an agricultural society back then, and you didn't know Jesus, you would go worship her. You would ask God, to, or you would ask her to bless your crops, and bless your family. Right? And it brought in no little business. Okay. And the point is, the, the whole point I want to bring out is that in Ephesus, the worship of her was big business. Okay. And so when the gospel starts making inroads, people start getting a little bit concerned. And it's not just that they are rich people losing their wealth, it's people that are afraid of losing their livelihoods. So do you remember when COVID happened and everyone was afraid that they couldn't work and they couldn't provide food on the table and they, they lost their businesses? It's like that. These people are afraid that they're going to lose not only their, their affluence, but they're afraid that they're not going to be able to put food, food on the table. Okay. And I want to make just a quick observation about this a side note about this is, is that is this is in pluralistic cultures. I don't really think people care about what you believe until what you believe stops people from living their lives the way that they want to. So let me explain this real quick. I I I, I was a closet Christian for a number of years, and then I decided that I wanted to share my faith with everybody in my high school. And you know what the response is that I got most often? Good for you. Right? That's awesome. I believe that everyone should be religious. I'm religious myself. I'm a, I'm a Muslim, or I'm into New Age stuff. And it became, and, and so you kind of like, you, you work up the courage, right, to share your faith. And go, hey, I love Jesus. And you're, you're, you're ready for some pushback, but pushback never came. And here's what I want to, want to think. is like, I don't really think people care about what we believe about Jesus until that belief interferes with their way of living. So, for example, I, I've shared the story before. I, I, I worked at a furniture warehouse, my first job, and I got to share my faith with my boss in very same scenario. All good, you know, everyone, everyone, all class leads to God, all that kind of thing, great on you. Dan, here's what I need you to do. I need you to lie about how much money we're selling, selling this couch for. And right away, because the Lord had told me to be honest, it puts me right in issue with that. And then he got an issue. You see what I'm saying? And that is what's happening here, is that the gospel is being spread for three years. And Demetrius does not care that Jesus rose from the dead. If he did, he would be pushing against it right at the beginning. It's only when he's starting to lose money that now he's having an issue with it. Okay? So it's just, it's, just a, it's just something I want you to observe as we go ahead. 
following the story, it says this, is that after he said that, the city riots, okay? And it goes on, this is what happened. When they heard that this, they were enraged and cried out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, okay? And I think I've got it going on here. It said, so the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the largest theater, dragging them, uh, dragging with them Garrus and Articius, uh, Macedonians who were Paul's travel companions. But when Paul wished to go among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of them were, who were friends of his said to them, him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some were crying out one thing and, for, and the other one was crying out another thing. Most of them did not even know why they were there. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander from the, Jew, from the Jews uh, put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Okay, so you have to understand what's going on here. Is is they are so Demetrius kind of goes and he gets his 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 guilt together and he says, guys, I'm concerned. He gets them all wild up and they burst forth in the street shouting, Great is Artemis, and everyone's going, I don't know what's going on. And because they're all patriotic and they all love Artemis, they all start chanting it. And pretty soon you have what's equivalent to the Vancouver riot. People are there, and they're burning stuff, and they're destroying stuff, and they're chanting, and nobody knows why they're there. Hey, bro, why are you there? I don't know. I heard there was free hot dogs. I don't know. Like There's just so much confusion. And what winds up happening is they, they go and they spill out into the, the great theater in Ephesus. And here's a picture of it, still standing today. The story that you're reading about right now in this text happens right in that state. It is the largest public structure in Ephesus, and it's still standing. It contains an impressive 25,000 people. And just for comparison, the Saddle Dome, when it's full of capacity, holds 19,000 people. So just imagine a crowd like that, in a building like that, all ready to tear apart Paul because he believed in Jesus Christ. Okay. So the story goes on, and they start chanting his name. And what winds up happening is the town leader calms the crowd. It says this in the text. It says, And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know the great city of the Ephesians is the temple and the great keeper of Artemis? And the sacred stone that fell from the sky. That's what I was talking about you earlier. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and rash and do nothing. For you have brought these men here who neither were sacrilegious or blasphemous or godless. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are pro-councils. Let them bring their charges against one another there. But if you are seeking anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we are in danger of bringing a charge with rioting today. Since there is no cause for the 
writing, we cannot give a justified a justifiable reason for this confused commotion. And when he said this, these things they were dismissed. So just a little bit of clarity here is that when it sounds he was the town clerk, it, it's it's kind of it's a misleading title for us because he's more than a record keeper. He would have been equivalent to the mayor of the city, and he was the go-between between the Roman Empire and the city. So think what, what the town clerk is to Ephesus, Herod was to Rome, right? So Roman, Herod is, is installed by Rome to oversee to see the people of Israel, and he's kind of the go-between. In this way, so is the town clerk. And he's not really interested in Jesus. He's not really interested in the worship of Artemis. He just wants there to be peace. Because here's the interesting thing. Ephesus is under Roman control. And the one thing that Romans hate more than everything is rioting. Right? So if it gets word back to Rome that Ephesus is in a riot, in come the guards. And in come the soldiers. And in come the higher taxes for all those things. So his way of crying the crowd is to say, guys, there's no reason for it. We know that there are about seven other uh, altars to uh, Artemis all over the province of Asia, and we're the best one. And do you really think it's going to be brought down by a couple of misguided preachers? It's since this is the truth, since, this is, since Artemis is the greatest god God has ever, you shouldn't be worried about that. So he dismisses the crowd. Side note. Demetrius was right and the town clerk was wrong because today the gospel still stands and the temple of Artemis is nothing but ruins. So that's a very interesting point to me. And so that's, that's essentially the story. And so what I want to I leave you with today is I want to make one observation and then one encouraging note for you today is that, that it's this, is that God seems to be ensuring that Paul arrives safely to do the good works he is prepared in advance to do in the city of Rome. Okay. I want you to understand that. Is that uh, Ephesians 2.10 says that for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which he prepared beforehand that we walk in them. And so what I think is happening is that God has called Paul to Rome, and in fact, here it is shortly after God has called him to Rome, he is, he is, he is uh, in a situation, in a riot that could end his life. And not only is he in a riot that has ended his life, but Paul chooses to make a decision how to solve and to quell that riot that was very foolish and could have ended his life too. What does it say he did when he found out that his, his friends were caught up in the riot? It says that he wanted to go in there and help them. But both the believers and unbelievers of which he know kind of held him back. So you kind of see that behind the scenes, God has a greater or a different call for Paul. He is to go spread the gospel to Jerusalem and Rome, and he's doing what every guy wants to do, which is go and fix the problem, right? Right? Every guy I know, whoever's presented with any problem, relationally, financially, mechanically, whatever, wants to go fix it. 
There's nothing wrong with that. But in this case, it would going in and fixing it would have made the situation worse because when they saw him, they probably would have torn him to pieces. Okay. Paul, in this case, needs to learn that God will fight for him, and he only needs to be still. Okay. Because from this point on, in the book of Acts, all the way to the end of Acts, he is being called to Rome. God has a calling on his life there. And this isn't the last time that his life will be in danger. After this riot, he will go in and he will experience a new riot in Jerusalem, which will arguably be worse. He will survive an assassination attempt. He will get shipwrecked. And he will survive a bite from a poisonous snake. All because, and here's what I want you to catch, is that I think in all of those circumstances, including this one right here, is that God seems to be ensuring that despite the suffering that he's going through, what God has called them to, he will arrive at. He will protect him at. I think it's better to say it this way, no power of hell and no scheme of man can ever pluck me from God's hands. And I think that this is a truth that you see in the text, and here's what I want you to, 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 to notice. It seems... Uh, here's where I want. To, I think I want to leave us today, and it's this: is that, is that despite the suffering, you will endure. If God has called you somewhere, if there is something good that He has asked you to do, if there are things that He has prepared, good works that He has prepared for you in advance to do beforehand, He will ensure that you arrive safely at your calling to do it. Okay. Again, I want you to look at Ephesians 2, verse 10. I'm, I'm not even getting the book yet. I'm, I'm just getting riled up about this. Okay. It says this, We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do what? Good works. Which He prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Listen to this very carefully, because I'm, I'm going to get worked up with this. Okay. The biblical narrative is that God created your body, your mind, and your soul, and He created you in His image. Your body and everything about you, from your physical body to your emotions to your mind to your spirit, is sacred because it is made in the image of God. And when you look at Eastern religions and philosophies, take Hinduism for instance. In Hindu, there, Hinduism, there's this idea of Brahma, right? the great creator God, and they say that they have different caste systems in India, and there's a, the, the different caste systems come from the different parts of Brahma's body. So there's, so there's the caste system from his arms, and there's other people that come from uh, his legs, and there's another that, a, people, a class of people that come from his uh, uh, other parts of a body, and then at the very lowest there's people called the Dalits. And they number 300 million in India, and they aren't even associated with the image of God. But I want you to think about that. 300 million people are told in their worldview of their religion, you don't even belong to the image of God. The ordinary person in ancient, in ancient times was never seen to have any connection of God. 
But the Christian worldview comes in and shatters that it, it, with all the, all the empires around the world. Every single person, rich or poor, black or white, educated or uneducated, whatever part of the world you listen, whether you have physical disabilities or mental disabilities, it doesn't matter. Your life is sacred because you are created in God's image. And I want you to know that because of that, God made you wonderful. He made your life with excellence. And because of that, you have intrinsic worth and value, not because of anything that you've done, not because of how you look, but because of whose image you represent. And because you're made in the image of a great God who does great things, He has prepared a great mission for you to do good things. Amen. He has prepared good works for you to do. He's got a calling on your life. It's that God, in His sovereignty, has made the world and said, okay, I need this done, and I need this done, and this done, and I'm going to create a person named Joe who's going to live in Ghost Pine right now to do that good work. And he's going to create you and you and you, and you have been created in his image to do great things. He's got a calling on your life. I guess we don't have to talk about Ephesians 2. <laughs> but I'm wondering... How many of you are avoiding the good things that God has called you to do because you're afraid it's going to hurt? I want you to understand something very clearly. God never promises that you will not suffer. In fact, you actually might do enter into the good works that God has had for you, praying for people, speaking life into people, building relationships with people, serving in the church somewhere, and you're actually going to find that your life is going to get worse, not better. Okay. And some of you are looking at that, and you're looking at the world of hurt that is before you. If you step into whatever it is, the, the good works that God has prepared in advance for you to do, and you're, you're thinking to yourself you're not going to make it. That it will end you. That it will end your livelihood, it will end your reputation, and this. And here's what I just want to leave you with today. Is that God loves you so much. Where God calls you, He will protect you. Wherever God calls you, I believe that... Uh, I'll look at the text here. Okay. Whatever suffering you will go through... You, God will ensure that you arrive exactly to where He has called you to be. And I think that's very, very important because I think some of us are afraid to look at the calling of our life to get involved in ministry, to serve in church, because we're afraid that somehow the suffering is going gonna, is gonna to kill us. And while I can't promise that you will not suffer, I can promise that what God has designed beforehand for you to do, He will see to it that you arrive there to do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. And thank you for your protection and your kindness and your goodness. Thank you for what you've done through the Ephesian church and who we are in Christ. I just pray that, God, if there are situations in our life, that the things that you've called us to, and we're afraid to step into that because we're afraid that somehow the suffering will overtake us. I pray we rest in the truth that 
no matter what the suffering is that we go through, you will ensure that we arrive safely to accomplish the mission that you have set up for us. In Jesus' name, everybody said.